0: Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 18th of September 2020. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show... Kiwis beating Australia on National Infrastructure Bank Solution. Dole. And big breakthrough for 9-11 truth. So firstly, something we can't let happen. Kiwis (laughs) beating Australia on National Infrastructure Bank Solution.
1: And they're not the only ones, Elisa.
0: No, no. And look, just to um, put the foundation out up front... In this economic crisis we're facing today, doesn't matter where you are in the world, in fact, uh, the most important intervention that governments could make is return to national banking so that they can direct funding to the areas that are needed, um, not just to reinforce crucial health infrastructure and so forth, but to rebuild the infrastructure we've destroyed and dismantled and privatised yep. over... 20, 30, 40 years. That what we has... saw,
1: Alisa, over those 44 decades was a neoliberal consensus that said government shouldn't do anything, no role in the in the economy, and especially no role in the financial system, leave it up to the private oligopoly. That has failed so spectacularly, right, not just creating bubbles that have blown up into financial crisis, but left the physical economy totally behind the eight ball in terms of what we need it to be able to do, that there's a growing awareness sweeping the world that they've got to go back to... The, there was a very basic policy that once upon a time many governments used to employ their own banks that could do the long-term things, mm. not the profit-driven things, the long-term things, but use the power of credit for that. And this, there's a growing consensus now. And we're seeing it sweep the world. Yeah. And it's come to New Zealand.
0: That's right. So um, just to give an assessment, South Africa, the ruling party there, is calling for a fully capitalised state bank to invest in infrastructure and re In Scotland, which already has a national investment bank, the Institute of Civil Engineers is calling for a complete focus on rebuilding infrastructure. In the United States, there's legislation on the Congress floor, the Democrats' National Infrastructure Bank Act of 2020, That will take a $500 billion capital raised from the government putting $100 billion worth of Treasury bonds in, and they'll attract another $400 billion of Treasury bonds from private investors by offering a 2% higher interest rate to those investors, and from that they will raise up to $4 trillion in capital, or leverage through credit, to spend $4 trillion on infrastructure. Now in Australia we've had already the um, unions proposing a limited form of a public bank in terms of a post office savings and loans bank um, which is not a full infrastructure bank but it has potential to go in that direction and at the very least would be far less bound by things like profit and risk and so forth so that credit could be directed into long term projects as you referenced. Um, But New Zealand, as you mentioned, is the latest on the list that has joined in and of course they've got an election going on over there. So the opposition party is proposing a $30 billion infrastructure program through a national infrastructure bank capitalised by the government. What they'll do is they'll combine a number of existing government agencies uh, such as a green investment, finance outfit and a growth fund. So pooling those funds that are available Um, and allowing superannuation to also invest into that bank so that they can begin to leverage that capital into investments. And we'll just roll a clip of Judith Collins, the National Party leader over there, announcing that.
2: I have announced that the government I lead will invest in New Zealand's largest ever infrastructure program. This includes $31 billion to upgrade our transport networks and declog our cities. $4.8 billion to fix our schools and further infrastructure upgrading our healthcare infrastructure. This election will determine the country the next generation will inherit. The legacy I will leave for the next generation is an upgrade to New Zealand's transport, education and healthcare infrastructure. Both sides of the political divide will need to borrow as we move through this crisis. I am determined that New Zealand will borrow and spend wisely. Today I'm announcing my plan to deliver better infrastructure financing for New Zealand's rebuild. I believe, as we head into the biggest infrastructure spend our country has ever seen, that we need a long-term disciplined plan for financing and managing infrastructure. Today I'm announcing National's plan for a single National Infrastructure Bank. The National Infrastructure Bank would provide additional finance needed to fund our infrastructure rebuild.
1: So, Elisa, that's the New Zealand equivalent of the Liberal Party saying that. Mm. Our governing party, their New Zealand counterparts, have announced a National Infrastructure Bank. And yes, it's a conservative proposal by the standards of the, um, the one in America, for instance, in the Congress, or even what we would propose, because you, you, sh- you can have a, an institution that actually uses the power of creating credit a lot more Nevertheless, the fact that it will be able to do things that a private bank would never do and private investment would never do, right? And then that can help upgrade New Zealand's infrastructure and make a big difference in their economy. Um, why, one of the reasons this is so, so significant in New Zealand, you've got to understand that when it comes to this new, neoliberal craze that took the world, nowhere went more extreme than New Zealand. It even, it even went further than Australia and Thatcherism, frankly. And it started in the 80s under the Labor Party there, like, like, like it started in Australia under Keating. Um, but the, the finance minister, his name was Roger Douglas, and he did this mass privatisation of assets and taking down the public sector in a big way. Um, and so his, his policies were nicknamed Rogernomics. But when the National Party, this party, took over from him in 1990, their finance minister, Ruth Richardson, took it so much further that her policies following Rogernomics were called Ruth and Asia. Right, she killed what was what was left, um, and the poor Kiwis have been struggling uh, ever since, and they, they basically became a one trick pony in terms of a, a dairy concentrated economy for exports. Um, so there's a there's a backlash there, and the the neoliberalism ideology is crumbling, and and that's this policy is evidence of that, right? And we need our liberal government to drop their neoliberalism and go with this kind of proposal of Australia is going to survive this economic crisis.
0: Yeah, and we exposed in a one of our New Citizen publications in 1997 that um, the same big business and banking interests that lobbied for these neoliberal policies bought up 80% of the assets that were sold. Yeah. I mean, so this is what you've got going on here. It's a complete scam. And speaking about the ideological drive to remove governments from the economy... Um, We want to um, uh, let people know about a new video that we've posted on our YouTube channel, which is a series of clips from an eminent professor, Lance Endersby, who we worked with very closely over many years, uh, until he passed away a few years ago.
1: 2009.
0: Uh, And... Lance uh, was an engineer who worked on the Snowy River Mountain schemes and leading schemes down in Tassie and so forth. So you, can, you can hear more of the details if you look at that Alisa, Lance video. Lance was
1: one of the... Th- people should watch this, this, this video. It, it goes for 50 minutes. It's the latest in our Citizens Insight series. Not just for the projects we, that Lance proposes in there, but the way see the way Lance thought. We worked closely with Lance and we valued the way he thought. He knew how things worked, right? And he did not... When, when all this neoliberalism garbage came along... He was not having it. And one of because he saw them dismantling the real economy, the things that make our lives happen every day. He saw them dismantling it in the name of financial excuses, right? And he wouldn't have a bar of it. You've got to watch the whole thing. But one little clip we want to play is him going really forcefully after this idea that governments can't do anything, they're no good. Because he's from... He hailed from a time when the government was the centre of excellence. And look how forceful he is on this subject because he knew what we did in Australia. We were the best in the world and these were government projects and he wouldn't tolerate this rubbish that that became a mantra we all accepted as the excuse that the private sector has to run everything for profit. Have a look at this clip.
3: I can remember, you know, 40 and 50 years ago, where the senior public servants were expected to be the best in the world in their field. If you were involved in irrigation or electricity or water supply, you were expected to be operating at world's best practice, and you got a kick in the bum if you didn't. Uh, I was with the Hydro in Tasmania. I was going overseas every two years, sort of thing. We and you know they say that we were not, uh, you know, operating according to market forces. We were competing with Ontario Hydro and Quebec Hydro and all the rest. Of it. we were trying to attract industries to Tasmania. We watched their prices like a hawk. We knew exactly uh, the prices of all our world competitors, and we organised ourselves. And we got a reputation for advanced engineering, the best in the world in some of the things we're doing. We 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 were first in the world with machine tunneling and things like that. Absolutely wonderful. But we were. Uh, a government organisation where the top management expected the young engineers uh, to be operating world's best practice and, and, and no excuses. You just got on with the job. And if you wanted to go overseas, you did so and you're off where you went. You were expected to be on top. So truly
0: do yourself a favour and watch that on our Citizens Insight program available on YouTube. Now we'll be right back, we're going to talk about state banking. Welcome back to the Citizens Report where we're discussing the National Infrastructure Bank solution. And there's more information on this in our weekly Australian Alert Service. You can call us for a complimentary copy if you haven't already and find out more. Uh, Now we wanted to talk about state banks because state banks actually preceded the Commonwealth Bank in this country from the 1800s. All of the state banks have of course been shut down or privatised, absorbed into the Commonwealth Bank generally uh, and some that happened um, in some cases as soon as the Commonwealth Bank started up. Some of those state banks were happy to hand over to the federal authority and that worked quite well in the 1930s. Uh, two of the state banks uh, had to be rescued by the Commonwealth Bank in the crisis years. Uh, in the case of Victoria, it's a... It's an interesting scenario that reveals a little bit of the policy decisions that destroyed all of state banking in this country. Lisa, Um, before
1: you go on, mm -hmm. the the, the main point that that this is a worthy topic right now is because, following on from what we said in the previous segment about New Zealand, if the Morrison-Friedenberg Liberal government doesn't go with a national bank that can actually do... It's it's all about long-term investment. Mm. Who's going to do the long-term investment in the things we need? If they're not willing to do it, Constitutionally, the states can do it alone. Each mm-hmm. state can say, "Okay, we're going to set up our own state bank." Because there's a whole history to it, and that's what—that's why what you're about to go through is a is Yeah, relevant. the
0: the um, constitution recognises the state power to conduct state banking, so the federal government couldn't override that. And furthermore, the state government can compel. Local government authorities and local councils even to bank with the state bank, which would capitalise it in a straightforward way.
1: So it's preferable if this is done nationally, but if the ideology doesn't get shifted nationally, let's just do it. Let the states go ahead and start do this. In America, one of the standout states is the state of North Dakota. A lot of lot of states in America are bankrupt. It's one of the few that aren't because Mm -hmm. it's the only one with a state bank that does this kind of investment.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, Now I wanted to talk about the Victorian State Bank because. Um, the process of financial deregulation is what destroyed it. So in the 1970s, there were a series of changes to the Act that governed the Victorian State Bank and it reflected other changes that uh, abolished the distinction between savings banks and merchant banks. So, of course, merchant banks get involved in all kind of international financing and...
1: Speculation, basically. Short-term, maximum profit money-making stuff. And that's not Uh, not what you want a proper bank to be involved in.
0: And, you know, we talk about this when we refer to Glass-Steagall because Glass-Steagall keeps separate those kind of commercial and retail banking functions from investment banking functions. So we didn't have an official Glass-Steagall, but it was a tradition, it was a convention in this country where those two things were separate. And as that was eroded through the 1970s and then particularly from the 1981 Campbell Committee inquiry that was conducted the Victorian State Bank found itself having to compete with the more profitable investment banks. So it started moving in that direction and hence bought shares in West Australian Bank, which was a merchant bank. West Australian ran into trouble and merged with TriContinental Bank and then to protect its investment, the Victorian State Bank uh, took over TriContinental. So that brought it down and the brunt fell on the shoulders of the West, of the Victorian State Bank and so it was taken over and absorbed by the Commonwealth Bank as a part of winding that up Uh, and that then led into discussions uh, from Paul Keating who managed that process to sell the Commonwealth Bank itself. So the process of the deregulation uh, concluded in that period um, and also at the same time uh, the scandal around the collapse of the Victorian Bank ushered in the government of Geoff Kennett Uh, which then whole hog brought in privatisation, deregulation across the board. He in Australia was the poster child for for the kind of Mont Pelerin Society neoliberal reforms that we discussed vis-a-vis New Zealand that led the world in this kind of model.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. And what Keating was able to do ideologically is say, you know, it was all about, oh, the private sector will do these things better. And this mantra, a mantra... T- was taken up that our government shouldn't be involved in banking because this Campbell report in 1982 had effectively outlawed public banking, right? Well the jury's in now, we can, we've had, 40 years later we can see the results of that and then when you go back and look at the state bank case as you said it wasn't about, it wasn't incompetent because it was run by the Victorian state government, it was, it was a disaster because it was this merger of banking with merchant banking which mm. should never have been allowed to happen, right? Because the end result of not having any public banks in the 40 years since has been a total lack of investment in the real economy of Australia. We're way behind the eight ball and the, the pandemic crisis has shown that up, but any number of crises would have. Um, so yeah, if the, if the Feds won't do it, right, mm. each, each state should say, well, we need that kind of long-term investment. They've all got investment corporations. The Queensland's yeah. got a huge one that actually functions as a private company investing all around the world. Invest in your own development. That's what we need.
0: And it will mean that we don't have to keep selling ourselves off. You can read more in this alert service about how all the links we're going to attract to attract foreign capital uh, means that our assets, and we've highlighted the case of Canada in this particular <laughs> issue, um, are being a s- sold off. A swarm
1: off. of Canadian pension funds are, are buying up Australia and squeezing out the profits of our infrastructure.
0: Yeah, from railways to ports and electricity grids, you name it. So we'll stop there. We'll be right back after this break to talk about the breakthrough of 9-11. Mm-hmm. Welcome back to the Citizen's Report, Big Breakthrough for 9-11 Truth. So, of course, we're referring to the September 11th terrorist attack, which we've just had, of course, the 19th anniversary of. Um, Now, on the 10th of September, the news broke that a federal magistrate in a court, a civil lawsuit brought by 9-11 family members, has ordered 24 current and former Saudi Arabian government officials to appear for deposition. Now these include senior government officials and government ministers including Prince Bandar bin Sultan who was then the ambassador and is also nicknamed Bandar Bush for how close he was to to George W. Bush and his family. Um, and son of the late King Fahd, among others. Now, Prince Bandar and his wife, um, you know, it's already known that they transferred funds to Saudi intelligence officials who were assisting two of the 9-11 hijackers based in San Diego. Um, So that's already known. Others would have first-hand knowledge of support provided to al-Qaeda pre-9-11. So they're opening the whole... um, can of worms here. This information about Bandar and assisting the hijackers in San Diego had been revealed through uh, what's known as the 28 pages which was a secret chapter of the congressional joint inquiry that took place after 9-11 and which was suppressed and hidden by Bush and then by Obama and it was only through a process of the families, 9-11 families and our colleagues in the United States worked with this People like uh, Congressman Walter Jones, who uh, passed away recently. And we, and we, others. Can,
1: we, we actively campaigned from here as well. That's right. We put out a pamphlet.
0: UK. We campaigned to have this released because it's an important truth for the entire world to know. And so it was through that political process that finally the 28 pages were released in July 2016. That led to a process two months later where um, JASTA, the Justice for the Supporters of Terrorism Act was passed through the american congress it was actually vetoed by obama and then they went back at it and got it through with a veto proof majority and again this took a fight and there were people lobbying against it from saudi arabia and from their ally in london um, to stop it going through Jasta limited the claims of sovereign immunity that the saudis were putting up to defend themselves from being tried you know in a foreign country for a terrorist case or terrorist support um, and so, yeah, that process has now opened the door to revealing a whole new um, uh, series of truths that can emerge as a result of this.
1: Well, there's, there's a couple of significant things to flow from it, Elisa. This, the, the fact that Bandar has been called... Bandar was the was the Saudi royal who negotiated the, the biggest arms contract of all time called Al-Yamama with the British government, with BAE Systems, um, which is very big in Australia, BAE Systems, and there's been a massive scandal for a long time about a slush fund that this contract, which was an oil for um, aircraft contract, it was a barter contract, but it created a slush fund that Bandar had transferred into his account every month. So from the British Treasury, mm. right, paying under uh, kickbacks to this guy, and that money is likely what was used to pay for 9-11, given his role in it, right? So the British government had a role in that, and that will... F- that this can flow back onto that, and that all has to be opened up. The other thing that, that could come out of this, though, is, 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 um, uh, is the fact that there's other people in the United States who are part of the NSA, the National Security Agency, that w- you know, we, we um, uh, work with and we report in our publication, like Bill Binney and uh, Kirk Wiebe, who they insist that this 9-11 should never have happened in the first place. All right, we're going to play a clip here from, from Kirk Wiebe because when they were at the NSA, they had a program, a surveillance program called Thin Thread, which wasn't mass across-the-board surveillance that took that that um, uh, you know rode roughshod over everyone's civil liberties to privacy. It was targeted only based on what they had absolute sus- grounds for suspicion for, and then connecting those dots. And they had identified the people involved in 9-11 before before it happened, this program, and they weren't allowed to use it. Mm. So listen to Kirk Veeby describe that.
4: Our solution that we developed that a lot of people have heard of uh, is called Thin Thread. um, Flew in the face of NSA's intentions to get a big budget from Congress and spend big dollars on the military industrial complex. And uh, it's a problem that we solved for uh, you know a few hundred thousand or at least uh, uh, no more than a million or two million dollars, and NSA wanted a four billion dollar budget to solve the problem, so our uh, little solution was squashed in favor of big project mode that failed five years later under the director's trailblazer program. Uh, At that point. um, Bill and I and Ed Loomis uh, walked out of the building uh, on October right after 9-11 because we were heartbroken that our little solution that was very effective and efficient had not been put into the fight against uh, terror. And um, we saw the result. Um, am I 100% sure Thin Thread would have prevented 9-11? Yeah. I am. Um, We knew what to target. We knew where the sources were, what we needed to target. And to be honest with you, if you ask Tom Drake, another one of the NSA whistleblowers that came later, he'll tell you that after we left, he found 9 11 information in NSA's database that predicted the event. He also told us that. An analyst at NSA, a group, not just one, but a small team, already knew that that 9-11 was going to happen and was going to put out a report but was prevented from doing so by the director of NSA, Michael V Hayden. Um, I wish I could tell you why. I have lots of guesses, but that's a topic for another day.
0: So the fact that this event was not stopped created the pretext for a whole raft of police state laws across the world, um, which is just getting way out of control. And they're
1: all predicated on, oh, we need this mass surveillance. But this program showed you don't need it. Yeah, the governments should be able to do a little the necessary things for security, but they do not need to destroy all their all rights in the process. Mm.
0: So we've fought against this sort of thing for a long time. Inform yourself by finding out more about the alert service. Contact us. Get involved in any way that you can. Thanks for tuning into the Citizens Report. We've run out of time again. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, Alisa. Join us again next week.